think it's safe to say we've officially entered the Christmas season now. I know that's a contentious point of debate among uh, many in our culture. Are you a family in which it starts the day after Thanksgiving? Raise your hand, the Christmas season. Okay, a few of us. How many of you would say not a day before December 1st does the Christmas season begin? Any of those people in the room? All right, Shanna, welcome. Okay, Snyders, a few back there. And how many of you are just like the moment Labor Day hits, you're like ready. The Christmas music starts and you're eager and you're decorating and the tunes come on and all that. I had a uh, piano teacher in uh, grade school named Mrs. Plexico. Mrs. Plexico would put her Christmas tree up on December 23rd and she would take it down on April 1st. And so March in North Carolina is like 80 degrees and Christmas lights are blaring. So that was her thing. Uh, no matter who you are, I'd say in general, we're ready for Christmas. So we're going to start a Christmas series this morning. So let's begin with a survey. How many of you are done with your Christmas shopping already? Raise your hand. Wow. A couple of you. How many of you would say, I hate the people who just raise their hands? Okay. How many of you would say that? All right. There's a couple of us. How many of you have ever re-gifted at Christmas? Wow, you should be ashamed of yourself, Jason Cavadini. I suppose it is. Handcuff me, take me to jail. Okay. How many of you would say um, that you have regifted the same Christmas season that you received the gift? That's like on another level of darkness. Anybody? No. I heard a story once about a guy who received a book re-gifted it in the same season, Christmas season, and he didn't realize it had a personal inscription on the front for him, like from the sender, he was in some hot water. On a more serious note, how many of you would, would say you're, you're a little nervous about some family dynamics coming up this Christmas season? Anybody here? Nobody at all? Okay, if we were to ask you that in private, there'd be a lot more hands uh, that would go up in the air, right? Okay, how many of you would say, uh, I think all of us, by the way, that's not a judgmental thing. We all have a little bit of Jerry Springer in our families, you know, just on one side or the other. It's just there. It's inevitable. We, we go through the, the process. How many of you, just curious, will spend more online this year than you will in a physical store? Raise your hand. All right. That trend continues to, to change, doesn't it? How many of you bought more for yourself on Good Friday than you did for somebody else? Raise your hand. Wow. Wow. And they're grinning, the people that did that. Last one. How many of you have a gift that you're really excited to give somebody for Christmas? Okay. I would say about half of us. Once you buy it. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Christmas Eve. Um, Christmas is time. I'd, ho I'd hope we'd all agree that we, we at least think about gifts. And the series that um, we're going to start this morning is called Hope's Name is Jesus. Everybody say that with me, if you will. Hope's name is Jesus. Because God gave us a gift. And it's a gift of hope. And hope is not 
a material thing. Hope is not a virtue. Hope is not an experience. For the committed Christian, hope is in every way wrapped up in the personhood of Jesus Christ. He is our hope. Um, We mean to say um, by acknowledging that Jesus is our hope that a new pair of boots, no matter how remarkable, will, will not ultimately fulfill us. We mean to say that a new car um, coming from a guy who doesn't have power steering um, and is really looking forward to bold being over so I can do something different with what I'm driving. If you're visiting, that's the name of our generosity initiative to to build a new building. Um, A new car, I am still confident, or utility tractor for that matter, which is another one like on the bucket list for me. It's not going to fulfill me if I really think about it. And you know what else won't fulfill you? Um, Most assuredly, a new pet. How many of you have come to that uh, discovery? Um, It just doesn't always go quite as well as we intend. A new love. A new love will not fulfill you. It will not. Ultimately, all of those things will leave us empty if we depend on them satisfying us perpetually. They let us down. They break. They make a mistake. They're not dependable. They're inconsistent. Um, In terms of a pet, they're not potty trained. That can be awful, right? Things, experiences fail us. Jesus doesn't. So he is our hope. And the gift of hope was mentioned in Isaiah long before it was mentioned in the Gospels. And we're going to begin there this morning. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Uh, That's a little, uh, I made a mistake there, James. Forgive me, but it's chapter 7, verse 14. I'm going to read this to you. If you brought your Bibles, uh, flip there quickly. And then we're going to jump over to chapter 9. This is what we read. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And we're going to provide a little context to that in a moment. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. We don't know who's talking, who's listening. The Lord himself will give you a sign. That's what we read. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Chapter 9, verses 2 through 4, we'll look at next in 6 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken. In the most well-known section, verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, 
mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those four names we're going to take one per Sunday for the remainder of December. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal or passion of the Lord of hosts will do this. The first thing that I'd like to bring to your attention this Christmas season is that this prophecy was not made at, quote, Christmas time. This prophecy spoken by Isaiah was given into a very real and troublesome situation in its day and of its time. It was the year 730 B.C. King Ahaz is absolutely terrified because Jerusalem is surrounded by the Assyrians. And he's trying to figure out who his best alliances are. So he's, to put it in modern day language, making phone calls and sending emails and posting to Facebook and trying to garner all the troops, all the friends, everybody he can find to counter the attack that is ensuing. And through the prophet Isaiah, a man of God, God says this to him, don't worry about alliances. I will protect you. In other words, my strength is greater than all the strength you could muster from hundreds of thousands of men and horses. Put your trust in me. Now, we would think that a prophetic word like that from a man of God would reassure a king. And it would give him confidence. But evidently, Isaiah could tell from his facial expression that he's still concerned. Now, can I just ask, who in the world ordered something today? Like, of all days, big dump truck come by. I guess it's salt, isn't it? Or snow in the back. Sorry, I, I go on tangents from time to time. I get a little distracted. As you do, by the way, I'm in a constant battle to bring your focus back here with these windows. So Isaiah says, Ahaz, don't be alarmed. God's going to do a miracle to show you that he's with you. It's not going to take buddies. It's going to be the hand of God. And Ahaz is still concerned because his line of reasoning is, no, don't do that because if God gives me a sign, then I'll have to obey him. He wasn't living according to God's will. He didn't want to. If God does something for me, I'm going to have to do something for him. And, and Isaiah basically says, well, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And here's what it is. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this is where we're going to have to put our big boy and girl theological pants on this morning because this is a bit odd, as is often the case with biblical prophecy. Just like in other prophecies, while there was ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, we know that. Many of us, whether sacred or secular people, have heard that read at Christmas time. We know that's talking about Jesus. 
However, it was also true, and we read about this child in chapter 8, that another child was born not long thereafter, Isaiah's words. So what we see is ultimate fulfillment in the baby Jesus, but partial fulfillment in Ahaz's day in this other child who will soon discover is not the ultimate fulfillment when we get to words like mighty God, everlasting father, uh, prince of peace, wonderful counselor, no mere human can be described in those, in those terms. So think of, think of prophecy in this way, and then I'll get off of this. But in North Carolina, where I was uh, raised, we have mountain ranges about two hours west from my home and, and the uh, Appalachian Trail and Asheville and Biltmore. It's beautiful. But as you're coming up from afar, you just see basically one big mountain range. And you think they're all the same mountain. And you get on top of the first one and you look out and you see, wow, what I saw from a distance isn't what I'm seeing up close. One of these doesn't spill right into the next one. There's big valleys in between. There's, there's, there's distances. And in the same way, we have to think about biblical prophecy from, from a distance or at a glance. It looks like one promise oftentimes, but actually it's two promises with time in between them. Does that make sense? Now, you may ask um, this question, which I think is where this gets really practical. How is news of Jesus being born 700 years later going to help a man named Ahaz who is absolutely surrounded by enemies? He's in a spot. He's in a predicament because there's an army outside that wants to invade. And Isaiah is fancying himself with stuff that's happening 700 years into the future. Ahaz's need is real. Ahaz's need is dire. And some people say, um, just like Ahaz, that's exactly how I feel. Honestly, pastor, heaven's at at least 60 years off for me. I mean, I need a God who's going to address my problems now. And at Christmas time, I think we feel this especially. Um, did you know that roughly 45% of Americans hate Christmas? It's just more dark for them than it is bright. For some family loss, for some sticky relational conflict, whatever the, for, for financial um, needs, whatever the case may be, it's tough for many. And, and we may feel this, especially, we love the quaint stories of the manger. We love fancying ourselves with pictures of, of wise men and, and shepherds, but I don't have a job pastor, or my marriage is falling apart, or I'm in chronic pain at least a portion of every day of, of, of my life. Don't get me wrong, the, the, the nativity, the crash, it's, it's heartwarming. It pulls at my strings, but 
But how can this apply to me in the spot that I'm in right now? The Hallmark movies are are nice. They really are. But they're not realistic. And in fact, if this is you, I'm going to, we're going to have some fun here. I'm going to teach you something new. I'm going to teach you how to say, I hate Christmas in Aramaic. Okay? It's going to be fun. We're all going to try it together. Okay? Just kind of get it out of our system. If that's the way you feel. Are you ready? Here we go. Okay, this is how it starts. Ready? Ba. Say, say ba. Humbug. Okay? You get it? Okay. Is that Aramaic? No. Um, but here's the point I want to make. We cannot minimize the pain that research tells us so many people are enduring in this season if our Christmas happens to be picture perfect. Because it's exactly how Ahaz felt. It's exactly what he was thinking. Enough with the colorful lights. I've got a real army encamped around me. So here's a question we need to answer. What does the promise of a future Messiah do for us today? Today. Because the birth of Jesus addressed their actual problems in ways that they did not even understand. And that's where we're going to go first. First thing is in sending Jesus Christ is what Isaiah was foretelling. In sending Jesus Christ, it dealt with the root of Ahaz's problems, though he didn't even know it. And it deals with the root of our problems at Christmas time in 2018. Our problems are much deeper than the circumstances that we perceive as we're looking around with our head on a swivel. Our problems are deeper than health issues. Our problems are deeper than finances. Our problems are deeper than relational conflict. The root of our problem is humanity's separation from God. That is the root of our problem. In fact, all of our problems can be traced back to that one. I don't mean to say that your specific sin is because of a specific, um, or rather that your specific health issue is, is a result of the specific sin that you're struggling with. That's not what I mean to say. I mean to say that if God were to take away all of our problems without fixing the problem, our sinful nature, we would still have problems. We'd have more of them. We'd have them often. They won't go away. J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, he called evil um, a word that that I have never heard before until I read this, a shape-shifter. A shape-shifter meaning that after you defeat it, it simply takes another shape and grows again. Its shape only shifts. I'll give you an example. Technology. Okay? I'm an iPhone guy. I have been for probably 15 years. 
Um, I do things with my phone that we never would have dreamt of in the BlackBerry days. I pull up documents I, while my, my car oil is getting changed. I pull up spreadsheets at the dentist office. Um, I can answer emails when, when, when I'm doing chores around the house. This thing gives me access to the word of God anytime I need it, whether or not I have my Bible. It also gives me access to the greatest temptations of mankind if I let it. It connects me to my family in North Carolina. I can press dad, FaceTime. There he is speaking to me. I see him visually. I can tell if he has a goatee or a mustache. He can make funny uh, things to the kids and pretend to tickle them. And I tickle them in real life. And they think he is. And it's just cute and fun and engaging. At the same time, I can take this home to my own family. And it can divide us. It'll come between me and Shannon. It'll come between me and the boys, the boys who are vying for my attention. Have smartphones solved some problems? Absolutely they've solved problems. But they haven't solved the problem. Our problem. Better technology cannot fix the human heart. Martin Luther said the problem with the human heart is it's curved in on itself. In other words, we are radically self-absorbed. If any one of us does something on this device that is not what God intends, we are being inclined to no one other than ourselves. And our inclination to ourselves gives birth to a whole spectrum of evil that I hope none of us ever fully explore, but that is present on any news channel on any given night. Things we couldn't even imagine creatively. But sin had to be dealt with at the root. And God, while offering to help Ahaz immediate problem wanted to make sure that he knew that at the root of all of those was a problem so he promised a messiah that would transform the human heart we cry out from a bad place of health that's a problem but God wants us to be delivered from the curse of death which is the root of our health problems. He's preparing a home for us in eternity, forever. We cry about broken marriages and God wants to deliver us from the sin and the selfishness that breaks apart our marriages. And you say, well, pastor, that's good, but why didn't God go ahead and destroy all the evil also, and the little p problems, so to speak. Well, let me ask you this. If God would say today, that's it. I'm done with sin. I'm going to wipe it all out at 11 p.m. I'm going to wipe out all the sinners at 11 p.m. Who apart from Jesus Christ would be alive at 11.01? I would not.
ultimate salvation did not come in the form of a problem defeater. Ultimate salvation and hope came in the form of a human child who, though born like us, was in every way or in a way completely unlike us in that he died for us. He wore our sin, crucified it to the cross, and by God's grace it lost its power to control and to destroy us. Here's what that means practically. God is not as desirous to fix your debt as he is to teach you how to spend thoughtfully, critically, to be a good steward. God is not as desirous to curb your dependence on the bottle or some chemical or some medication as he is in showing you that ultimately you depend on himself. God isn't as desirous in repairing your marriage as he is in teaching both parties to look inwardly, kill those desires so that they might be others-centered and put one another's needs above their own. In promising to send Jesus, God's promising to be our sustaining fix, not our temporal fix. So that's first and foremost how he addresses our problems. He wants to get at the root of them. But he doesn't quit there. In another way, God's promises absolutely speak to our problems with a little p. In these four beautiful and relational names, God said Jesus would come to us as our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, and our Prince of Peace. The first word wonderful and wonderful counselor, it means beyond our understanding. It's a word used during this time when something was too amazing even for human language. Isaiah was saying when Jesus comes, he will be more remarkable than your words are even capable of expressing. That's how great Jesus will be. He'll be wonderful. The second word translated counselor means one who advises or instructs and guides, and, and here's the really important part, from a position of authority. In other words, it's not talking about one who gives advice like your buddy gives advice at 11 p.m. on a Friday when full of nachos. In other words, Jesus would not come and listen to your issues and say something to the effect of, yeah, that stinks, bro. I hate her too, man. It's not the way the wonderful counselor guides. Rather, think of God more like Solomon. Solomon was capable of listening. Then he was capable of actually crafting a solution. 
He discerned the voices of the parties involved. And he showed people a way out in the stickiest of matters. So Isaiah says, a son will be born, a child will be given to you. He will be your wonderful counselor. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 explains why it is that Jesus can be so wonderful. Such a great counselor. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and is yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus, in other words, isn't just a king who rules over humanity. He's also a friend who's been through what you and I are going through. And I would advocate even more than you and I have been through by a long stretch. Some of us, certainly not all of us, could say that we grew up in extreme poverty. What do we know of Jesus? Where was he born? Joseph could not buy himself out of no room for them in the end. Why? He didn't have enough money. Where did they end up? A stable. Do you think it smelled like a peppermint patty in that stable? Pumpkin spice just wafting through the air? I don't think so. That was a terrible place for a young mother to give birth. That's the way his life started. Swaddling clothes is a nice euphemism. What it means is rags. And you know what? His entire life cycle, he never got out of that. 33 years old, what was he crucified in? Rags. They were even, even the rags stripped off of his body. Didn't have a place to lay his head in the middle. He's homeless. Can Jesus identify with your poverty? You better believe he can identify with your poverty. What about your pain? Can Jesus identify with physical pain? Of course Jesus can identify with physical pain. Brutally. Let's, let's go back farther. In Gethsemane, sweating human blood, physical, actual drops of human blood through the pores of the body. It's medically possible in extreme mental anguish and stress. Crown of thorns comes down on his head. Nails in his hands and feet. The equivalent of a toilet brush put into his face with antiseptic, with vinegar when he's thirsty. Didn't mention the lashes he took. 40 minus 1 cut just short of stripping him of his own life in order that he might endure more. Dropped into a hole with a force eats at the most sensitive nerves in the human body in his hands and feet. Spear under his rib cage and into his heart sack. 
wrapped in hundreds of pounds of linens and spices laid in a tomb, I think it's safe to say that Jesus suffered. Temptation. Was Jesus Christ tempted? Absolutely, he was offered the kingdoms of the world. He was offered food when he hadn't eaten in 40 days. And yet he did not sin. He, he responded to temptation with scripture. He's our most wonderful counselor. Let's boil this down. Some of you right now, if you're honest, you'd say, I'm in a real time of need this Christmas. Here's the good news. Jesus came not only to fix your problem with a capital P, he came to fix your little P problems. In fact, every miracle Jesus performed was to fix a problem. Just think about that. Jesus was not a David Blaine or a David Copperfield. His miracles were in, in response to somebody's need. Did he heal the man with the blind eyes because he wanted to, to shuffle the deck in a fancy way? No, he didn't. He, he healed the man because he was blind. He had con compassion on him. What about the feeding of the 5,000? Did that address a need? You better believe it addressed a need, 5,000 needs, 5,000 hungry bellies, plus women and kids. So Jesus, he didn't do tricks. Some of you may have came in, and this is a, a bit of a, an odd sermon because you're relatively carefree. No miracle needed. In fact, I would say you might could use a problem or two in your life so that you'll come to depend on Christ. I, I will tell you that... Um, We've said this in recent weeks. When life is demanding and hard and difficult, it will drive some people away from Jesus. It will drive many people toward Jesus. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a time of prayer right after we take communion and remember the Lord's body and blood broken and poured out for us. And we're going to together approach our wonderful counselor. Some will do so at their seat. Others will come to the front who have problems. And here's what I want to do. I want to give you a few ground rules before we go into this time. First, be honest with Jesus this morning. Be honest with yourself you may not feel inclined to be honest with somebody you know here, and that's okay, but be honest with Jesus. Every counselor will tell you that until you're honest, they cannot help you. They can't. Be honest with where you are to God. He loves you. Second, you have to want to be healed for Jesus to fix your problem. I've met so many people 
that want to be out of debt but don't want to make any sacrifices. They're not willing to adjust their standard of living. Your pastor would love to be 20 pounds lighter and continue to eat comfort food. But I've got to make sacrifices. Many people want to experience the benefits of having their problems fixed, but they don't want to go through the painful choices that must accompany their healing. We want God to clean up the mess without dealing with the choices and the patterns that got us into the mess, you see. We like the concept of change. We don't want to work for change. Are you willing to deal with the things that Jesus tells you you've got to deal with? So be honest with him. Want to be healed. And third, you've got to do whatever Jesus says. You read the Gospels, one of the things that stands out the most is some of the most lavish, crazy things Jesus tells somebody to do. Take the guy with the, with the blind eyes, for example. Jesus makes a couple mud pies, slaps them on the guy's eyes, and says, go wash off in this particular pool by this name. And why didn't he just heal the guy? There wasn't power in the pool. Because he wanted to see if the guy would be obedient. And do something crazy. Peter, do you remember Peter? Had a debt, he had a bill he couldn't pay. He said, Jesus, help, I've got a bill I can't pay. Jesus could have just lent him $20. What did he do? He said, go fishing. And in the fish's mouth, you're going to find a coin for the exact amount of your debt. Why did he do that? It's ridiculous because he wanted to see if Peter was foolish enough and faithful enough to obey him. What is Jesus asking you to do? Is Jesus asking you to put accountability software on this thing so that you don't betray your marriage? So that you don't run amok with tender or with Instagram, or with chat in Instant Messenger? Is God asking you to get rid of alcohol in your home every last drop so that you don't go back to that for your hope? Even though it's a bottomless pit, even though it's a cycle of exhilaration and despair, what is God asking you to do? And will you do what Jesus says? Do you trust him? So those are the ground rules, being honest, wanting to change in total obedience. Father, as we come this morning down the center aisle and take 
a cracker representative of your broken body and dip it into the juice representative of your shed blood. I pray that we would recall everything that you did for us. I pray that we would understand that you were born to die. I pray that we would find exceeding joy in your sacrifice and want to partner with you in our own freedom so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. I pray that we would deal with the problem with the big P. I pray that you would help us deal with the little P problems. I pray that you would get all the glory and that testimonies would come out of this season of your faithfulness and grace over our lives. I pray that marriages would be saved, Lord. I pray, God, that people would honor you in their singleness, Lord. I pray, Father, that addictions would be crushed as the idols that they are and you would become our treasure, our fulfillment. We love you. We're thankful for you. In Jesus' name, amen.